Our Father, we're thankful again that You have provided for us through the salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit who helped create the world, who preserves Scripture, can be our teacher. And we pray that You would open all of our hearts tonight to the content of Scripture, that we may see Your Son in a more clear fashion, and that having seen Him, we can appreciate more of the plan of salvation and what it has done and provided for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn in your notes to page 37, um, that chart that I put in there, um, once again, just to review, we're on the um, birth of Christ and the doctrine associated with that, the hypostatic union. I haven't got a slide yet prepared for this section for this year. But this chart is to just show you that one of the silliest comments you, you hear is, uh, I heard it just this week, somebody was saying that uh, nobody thought before the age of the Enlightenment, like all during the Middle Ages, nobody thought. Nobody in the church ever dreamed of anything. Think of all these debates. You tell me they didn't think. I mean, this is heavy material. This is one of the finest, deepest, and greatest in-depth discussions that the human race has ever had in considering the nature of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it all happened, believe it or not, before television, before we had PhDs, before we had any of the modern universities. It even happened before the age of the Enlightenment. Now imagine that. All the people were able to do all this. So... When you hear that remark, it's so silly because all of these things, these false ideas that crept into the church had to be filtered out. And that's why um, I call them on the left column in that chart by their ancient history names. And the middle column, I've tried to show you that this stuff is recycled down through church history, comes back again and again. And on the right side, uh, we're working our way through the presuppositions that people come with when they come to the person of Christ. Um, if before, when we were in Genesis and creation a few years ago, you didn't pick up on, on the role of presuppositions in thinking and how important those presuppositions are, uh, I hope going through this series will make you uh, maybe think more clearly about it. Because the errors in that right column where I've underlined the text those are the erroneous basic ideas that the people came with, many of them Christians. Many of them Christians. Remember, people that were Christians then were converted pagans. And they came into the church like newborn babes and they had a lot of baggage with them. And the baggage that they had with them was this Greek thinking, this pagan thought. And they had to get this all purged out of their minds before they could even think correctly about the person of Christ. When we finish this set of notes, the, the stuff that was handed out just tonight finishes this chapter. Instead of going to the next chapter, which would be the life of Christ, we're going to go to an appendix to this thing and we're going to deal with the Trinity doctrine. Uh, because what has happened after you get through all of these errors on the right side of that column, what you find out is that there's no way to adequately assemble the data that the New Testament is giving us about the Lord Jesus Christ 
unless you deal with the Trinity. The Trinity becomes the presupposition of all this material. And every one of those errors there that you see are basically errors in that they have replaced the Trinity with something else, a surrogate God model. For example, the first two rows, modal monarchianism and dynamic monarchianism. All they did is what Islam does, it's what later Judaism did. They have the idea that by monotheism we mean a solitary, lonely being. And that, you can see how people might think that. Um, you can think how, for example, Muhammad uh, and many of his followers were so determined to get away from paganism that they went so strongly to monotheism without much thinking about it that they all of a sudden have this dogmatism about this solitary, monotheistic being. And the problem with that is that the social dimension of communication person to person can't happen for all eternity in a solitary God, in a solitary being. The, what we call the interaction of personal interaction only can happen if the solitary being, in fact, isn't solitary. It's a trinity, a triune nature. Then God can communicate with himself and talk within himself and there's communication. But if you don't hold to the Trinitarian model and you hold instead to a solitary monotheistic model, then what happens is, is that God has to create in order to supplement himself. He's lonely. He's got to have company. So he creates a universe to have company. That's not the biblical model. That makes God not self-contained. That makes God dependent in turn upon the creation. So the Trinitarian model of God is not something like Jehovah's Witnesses always try to tell you that it's, oh, that's Greek philosophy that crept into the church. It's exactly wrong. It's exactly wrong. It couldn't be more perfectly wrong. It's the opposite of Greek philosophy. It's precisely because Greek philosophy was purged out of the church that the Trinity arose in the church. It arose as a substitute for everything that the Greeks were offering. So that kind of thinking is really screwed up and really wrong. Now, we've covered what we're trying to do is we're trying to go through a logical process that the church went through in seeing Christ more clearly, trying to state all this material that we read about in the New Testament. Um, what we've done so far is we, on page 36, we, if you look at the top part, that Christ as Son is a divine person distinct from the Father. Now, that was the truth, one of the first things the church officially confessed, that Christ as Son as a divine person distinct from the Father. The Father and the Son are not masks that God puts on, for example. That's modal monarchianism. Then we came on page 37 to the second statement, clarifying that Christ is separate, a divine person from the Father. It says, Christ's subordination to the Father is not one of essence. Now, it's clear in the New Testament, and I give you the references there, it is very clear in the New Testament that um, if, if you turn in your Bibles, here's a good example of it. So look at one of these verses. 1 Corinthians 11:3. Now, here's a verse 
that clearly shows a subordination of Christ to God. And it's verses like this that um, heretics have camped on to try to disprove the deity of Christ. So, in verse 3, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, that man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. You can see how that verse, taken by itself, out of context, would be used to show that somehow Christ is less God than God because there's a subordination going on. And the subordination shows up in vocabulary in the New Testament because in the New Testament, when Paul describes God and describes the Son, he reverts most of the time to these two words. One is theos, which is the word for God. Then he uses the word kurios, which is Lord. This word is the Father, and this word is the Son. And so he does have a vocabulary distinction here of them. So, the church dealt with that and had to deal with the nature of Christ's subordination. And it concluded that the subordination is not one of essence. Jesus Christ is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is immutable. He is eternal. He is righteous. He is just. He is loving. He has all the attributes the Father has. No, not a subtraction. So, whatever the subordination is, it can't be one of essence. And you remember, page 38, that there were two words that were figurative used in this debate. One was homo usion. The other was homoi usion. Now, that first word meant of like substance, of identical substance. The next one is of analogous substance. Very important distinction between these two Greek words. You'll notice there's only one letter difference. And that's where it arose in the English language, came over in the English language through... uh, uh, Gibbon's uh, fall and decline of the Roman Empire, in which he laughed at the Christians for debating this and said it didn't matter one iota. Well, that's where that expression came from. Well, it certainly does matter one iota. And one iota made a big difference here. So, that was Arianism. And you remember, down the bottom of page 38, here's how the church concluded in a very practical way. Here's what won the day. Because remember, this heresy of Arianism was the majority view inside the church for years. And it was because you had a minority within the church that, hey, wait a minute, whoa. We challenged that thinking in the name of Scripture. That thinking is not right. The Scripture says, and these men went back to the Scriptures and argued the case. And down at the bottom of page 38, I try to summarize the substance of their argument. This is to show you that this is not 
high flute in theology, they had some very practical results to all this. Who said to them, that's Athanasius, saying to the Arians, who said to them that having abandoned the worship of the created universe, they should proceed again to worship something created in vain? If you're going to worship Jesus Christ and you hold to the fact that there's a creator-creature distinction, if that creator-creature distinction exists, what do you do with Jesus Christ? You see, you've got the distinction. Now, what side of the, the... There's no middle ground. Is Christ on one side or is Christ on the other side? So, that's the debate that went on. Is where does Christ fit in this, this creator-creature distinction? That's the background for all this argumentation. And you'll see that where the closer men held to the Old Testament scriptures, the more dogmatic they were about the creator-creature distinction, and that's finally what carried the day. But Arius clearly wasn't clear on the creator-creature distinction. I mean, he was trying to smear it away. The modal monarchians were trying to smear it away. Today, tonight, we're going to see some more of the people. Monophysitism tried to smear it away. So there was a whole bunch of people in the church that just were slippery and sliding all around. They were on a grease pond here with this creator-creature distinction. Well, Arius, Athanasius' challenge is, if you're going to worship Christ in any way, shape, or form, then he has to be God or you're blaspheming. Very simple. Then he further argued, top of page 39, that if the semi-divine Christ were not fully God, then he had to be mutable because he's lost his attribute of immutability. How can he who beholds the mutable think he's beholding the immutable? In other words, if I look at Christ and I try to see God in Christ, I'm not looking at God in Christ. I'm looking at Christ who is less than God. So how do I see God in Christ when Christ isn't God? So you, you, you commit blasphemy by making Christ less than God. You destroy revelation by making Christ less than God. And finally, the third argument, same paragraph, top of page 39. In short, the anti-Arians, led by Athanasius, argue that if Jesus be not God then Christians are not saved. So it undercuts the whole issue of salvation. What is eternal life? That we might know Him. How do we know Him if in fact we don't know Him? If in fact we only know this half-creature, this half-God, half-man, Christ, and knowing Him isn't knowing God, so if I don't know God really, then I don't have eternal life. So, these are all the arguments that went on. And then finally, they came to the Nicene Creed, which again on page 39, to remind us again that when you recite these creeds, if we ever do in our evangelical churches, if we recite these creeds, at least let us, as we recite them, appreciate the fact that they're not just words on a piece of paper. These creeds were theological filters that guys gave their lives to. It took them years to make these creeds so that they could hold to the truth. And that's why in the Nicene Creed, and always think, when you think of the Nicene Creed and think of, of this section, think of the Apostles' Creed that we all are familiar, more familiar with. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, His Son, suffered on Pontius Pilate, and crucified him. And you see, it just goes right on quick. But contrast that wording of the Apostles' Creed that we all know with this wording of the Nicene Creed. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of all things, visible and invisible. See, that 
cut the stuff out from under some intermediary being, the invisible angels. No, God is creator of those too. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, only begotten of the Father, that is, of the substance of the Father, God of God, begotten, not made, being of the same substance with the Father. Remember this word we said, without, without the iota? Homoousian? That's the word. That's what they're talking about in the Nicene Creed here. Where it says, being of the same substance with the Father. So, this is the church laying down the line, putting forward the truth about Jesus Christ. This is what separates Christ from Muhammad. It separates Christ from Confucius. separates Christ from Buddha. separates Christ from everybody else. Nobody makes this claim about themselves except the stubborn Christians that keep making this claim about Jesus Christ. Absolutely unique claim. And don't be ever confused, because this often happens on the college campus, be confused with some slick-talking Joe that tries to say, well, Hinduism and Oriental religions have incarnations too. Well, yeah, they have what they call incarnations. But their incarnation is an incarnation not of the Creator God. They already washed out the Creator-Creature distinction. They've got an incarnation, if your imagination will recall, it's Star Wars and all that. It's the Force incarnating itself. That's what they're talking about in their incarnation. Don't let the word incarnation that's used this way by an oriental religionist confuse you with the word incarnation as it is used in Christian theology. Same word, absolutely different meanings. And we hit semantic grease when we start using this word and this, you know, everybody's discussing incarnation and there's five people in the discussion, there's six ideas of incarnation floating around, all of which using the same word. That's how... That's why you, you, know, you can sit there by the hour and discuss and then afterwards you think, well, gee, you know, we were doing this all the time. We we're talking by one another. We weren't using the same definitions. Okay. Now we want to come tonight to the next step. That's on page 40. Now, to prepare for that, let's turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. After it was clarified that Jesus Christ distinctly was God, so that when I know Christ, I know God. Then came another problem. We elevate Christ's deity, we emphasize that over and over and get that down. Now my problem is, have I forgot the humanity of Christ? So the whole next discussion deals with the weather of fact that Jesus Christ was a real man. Now the practical side of this, I want to show you the practical side so you don't get tempted to kiss this off as some theological stuff that really doesn't matter. Look at Hebrews 4.14 and ask yourself as you look at Hebrews 4.14, 15 and 16 whether that truth would work if Jesus were really an angel or God walking around in a human body, kind of. You know, he had no human soul, no human spirit, just happened to have a body that walked around. Um, now look at 14 of uh, chapter 4. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in all points been tempted as we, yet without sin. Look at that carefully. The high priest was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ had full humanity. If He didn't, then He could not put Himself in a position of being our priest. Because He wouldn't have had the experience, it says here, of being tempted in all things like we are. God isn't tempted like we are. Come on. You know, if God's omnipotent, He's not worried about whether He's going to get food tomorrow. He can turn a rock into a piece of bread. So God isn't tempted. So the tempting that goes on in verse 15 has to do with the humanity of Jesus Christ. And He has to experience this in order for Him to be a sympathetic high priest. That's why in verse 16 now, in verse 16, there's a very practical thing in the realm of prayer. That's why we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why do we draw near the throne of grace? Because at the throne of grace, we have one who's been there, who has walked the face of the earth. Then in chapter 5, we come over to another statement. In chapter 5, verses 7, 8, and 9. This is an amazing section. We'll get into this more in the life of Christ, but we want to deal with it here just to show Christ's true humanity. In the days of His flesh, He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save Him from death. And He was heard because, in this translation says, because of His piety. Although He was a son, now look at verse 8, powerful statement. Although He was a son, He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Can God learn? If God is omniscient, what does he learn? Doesn't learn anything. Can't learn anything. Two people can't learn something. A moron and God. God can't learn anything because he knows everything. If you know everything, you don't learn anything. Now, the Lord Jesus is said to learn. So he had to learn through the things which he suffered. He had to pass through this life as a man, a real human being, and had to learn. Do you think he can empathize then with us when we come before the prayer, throne of grace, and say, you know, it hurts down here? I think he can. Because look what it says. He offered prayers with tears. Does he know what pain is? Yes, he does. Does Allah know what pain is? No, he doesn't. Why is that? Because Allah never walked the face of the earth. Allah never got his fingernails dirty. It's only the biblical God that got his fingernails dirty. Walked around here. See the power. There's a basic, tremendous difference between the biblical God and all the phony religions out there. Their God is either impersonal God or he's so distant he never touches the human race, hasn't got a clue about what temptation means has never been with us. So, that is what is tied up with the humanity. Now, if you look at the notes on page 40, we'll go through this next section. The title of this section, again, if you look at the chart on page 37, so we won't lose our way, you'll see that the next section is called Docetism. Maybe other names, but I'm just using the word Docetism here. 
Because docetism holds to the fact that the humanity of Christ that appears in the New Testament is an illusion. It's not really humanity, of, or not real humanity. And if you look on the right column, I'll explain the extreme Calvinism in a moment. On the right column, only pure ideal is called God, is real. Remember when I went back and we started this and I said, the, the Greeks had this thing and they were right, but they were kind of wrong in the way they went about it. It's the question, have you ever seen a triangle? You can sit in geometry with your little compass and pencil and ruler and you can sit on a computer and make triangles. Triangle and make computers never were close to a triangle because the pixels on the screen will always distort it. Well, when you put a, red, a pencil and a piece of paper, the graphite in the paper doesn't form a straight line. Look at it under a magnifying glass. So the Greeks simply asked the question, where is there a true triangle? We all kind of know what a triangle is, but we never get up touch one because it doesn't really exist. The ideal triangle doesn't exist in the unideal world. So they conceived that the ideal triangle is off into yo-yo land somewhere. It had to be somewhere because we can all think about it. But it was off into the ideal. Now, what they did is say, okay, Christ is the ideal. But if he's the ideal, then he's not part of this world. See, this comes up again and again to infect the church. We've seen it in monarchianism. We saw it in Arianism. Now we see it in docetism. Okay, now let's look more at what docetism said. This is how we learn truth, by looking at the distortions of truth. And then say, oh yeah, I never saw that before. Okay. All of this, by the way, about the unthinking people that lived before 1950. The debate then shifted to the matter of Christ's incarnation. If Christ is of the same essence as the Father, how was this divine nature incarnated? Did God acquire full human nature? And so forth. The next one, Stocetism answered the question very simply by denying that Christ ever had any humanity at all. Some of them denied his body. That's real extreme Docetism. The body was just an illusion. Some denied his, that he had a soul or had a spirit. That was more common. In this view, he had only what appeared to be a human nature. You know, God couldn't actually have a real human nature. That's just unthinkable. Docetism arrived at this wrong answer by, by importing from the pagan culture a Platonic and Oriental dualism that believed the empirical world wasn't real. Once again, we observe a vital biblical question answered wrongly because concepts from outside the Bible were brought into the discussion. New Testament revelation, of course, requires a real humanity for Christ regardless of such pagan dualism to generate legitimate historical righteousness. Remember, he learned obedience by the things. Think about that. He learned obedience. And what does obedience produce but righteousness? Now, how was that righteousness produced? It was done by obedient acts of a real human being. Now, if he wasn't a real human being, could he have generated creature righteousness? Could he have shown us what righteousness is? Yeah, God is righteous. But can you see a creature being righteous? Not if Jesus wasn't a creature. Not if he didn't have a full human nature. So that's what we mean by that. He had to, number one, 
there's some reasons here, and I just listed them with verses after them, so be careful when you read this to distinguish. There are several things I'm saying in this sentence. One thing is to generate legitimate historical righteousness. That's number one. Number two, his priestly qualifications. He had to be qualified as a priest. His representative position is the second Adam, which we'll get into later. He can't be a second Adam if he's not an Adam. His efficacious death. The lamb had to be sacrificed. There had to be a real death. Well, if it's not a real body with a real life, how can you have a real death? If you don't have a real death, how do you have a real sacrifice? And if you don't have a sacrifice, where's salvation go? His absolute revelation of God. That was Athanasius' argument. If Jesus isn't going to be... If he's not God, then when I see him, I don't see God. If he's not a man, then he doesn't present to me, who is also a man, what God is like. His fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. That depended on him being a literal human being. The function of the virgin birth was to introduce Christ's human nature into the world. In opposing the ascetic interpretations of Christ, the church opposed in principle all tendencies, and here's, watch this sentence, because here's where I get into extreme Calvinism. I mean, I, I appreciate Calvinism. I appreciate what the reformers did, so don't think that I'm attacking them here. There's just some weirdos in the camp that really must be an embarrassment to John Calvin sometimes. In opposing docetism, the church opposed in principle all tendencies to downgrade and make illusory real physical history, such as sometimes occurs in extreme Calvinism, which is so much focus on God's decrees that their historical manifestation are of no account. The doctrine of divine decrees. Is it infralapsarian? Is it superlapsarianism? And they go into this, all this question, this and that. And the, God, the elect are always there in God's mind, yes, but they don't exist until they exist in history. The elect do not come into existence until they come into existence by belief. Until that time, they don't exist. They exist in God's mind, of course, yes. But they don't exist in history any more than the universe existed before God created it. God called the universe into existence. And the gospel goes out and it calls those, the, the elect, into existence. But they're called into existence and they don't exist before. So you can't have this constant emphasis on God and his decrees without an emphasis on history. And then people get imbalanced and you have all kinds of problems. wouldn't have the problems if you just think about Christ. Christ is God. Christ is true humanity. See, a lot of these things that we get in trouble with in the church come about because we are really not clear about Christ. If we really thought through who Jesus Christ is, we wouldn't have half the theological controversy we have. Not half. Because the tools that you use to understand the person of Christ apply over here, apply over here, apply over here, solve that problem, solve that problem, solve that problem. <clears throat> okay. Later, more sophisticated versions of docetism occurred, which held that Jesus had no, uh, no uh, soul, he had no human spirit, and so forth. Then it, Philip Schaff's quote, the church could not possibly accept such a half... Look at, look at what Schaff says here. Great, great words by a great historian. The church could not possibly accept a half docetic incarnation, such a... Look at this, this sense is great such a mutilated and stunted humanity of Christ 
despoiled of its royal head, and such a merely partial redemption has this inevitably involved. The incarnation of the Logos is its becoming completely man. This was the weighty doctrinal result of the Polinarian controversy. So that, that's the, the next step in the line. Now on page 41, we come to the next problem. After we get the God and man together, after we say that he is true humanity, he is real deity, now we come, okay, what do we do with getting these two natures together now? Do they mix? Does they put vinegar and water, as one of the early church fathers said, and what you get isn't either vinegar or water. It's vinegarized water. So, when you put the deity of Christ along with humanity, what do we get? Deified humanity or humanized deity? What happens here? What do we do with this? Christ's two natures, this is the next step. We're heading toward Chalcedon's confession. So, you'll see all these statements that I underline, it's moving toward that point of the confession. Christ's two natures are united without mixture. Key word, without mixture mixture. Why is it that we can't have mixture? It goes back to fundamental theology of the Old Testament. You can't mix what can't be mixed. And what is it that the created creature? Right here. You can't mix the creator with the creation. First and great commandment. Thou shalt have none of the gods before me. So the first commandment, by enforcing this barrier, keeps the natures of Christ separate. And this is, this is really deep stuff now. And there's never been a, a perfect way to comprehend it because it is incomprehensible. All we can touch theologically is say it's not this, it's not this, it's like that, it's like that. We work our way around it. We know it's not this. So that's what we're doing. Christ's two natures are not mixed together. With Christ's divine human natures firmly recognized, early church discussion concentrated more and more on the matter of how the two natures were brought together. The person who is a casual student of the subject will dismiss such discussion as impractical theological quibbling or is irrelevant to my life because he fails to see what's at stake. The issue ultimately is nothing less than the God, the creator's relationship with his created universe. A wrong answer here will distort all other truths. Nestorianism is the first wrong answer in this category of errors. Let's look at it. Second paragraph. Nestorianism erred by starting at the wrong point with the wrong question. Remember way back two or three years ago when I started this series, what did I say? Don't answer a question until you thought about the question. Because you start in at 40 miles an hour because you think you answered the question. You find yourself going down a highway that you never intended to go down. Somehow you got steered over here in this, this pathway and you wonder after five miles of driving, why am I down here? How did I get here? Because you took the wrong turn. Well, why did I take the wrong turn? It looked right to me because I tried to answer the question without thinking what the question was. And you get a question like, how many times last week did you beat your wife? Now, you, you, well, how do you do that one? Wrong question. You incriminate yourself the moment you're out of the box. So, so with the church, when you get into these theological debates, they headed down the pathway without thinking. So Nestorius did the same thing. Nestorius and his followers began to analyze the union problem. Now watch this. They began, starting point. Their starting point was wrong. 
It wasn't the starting point in the scriptures. It was a starting point in the concept that they had that was floating around. So instead of going back to the scriptures, Nestorius said he thought he had enough tools from his education and Greek thought and so on. The Nestorius and began to analyze the union problem from the creature's limited viewpoint within history. Nestorius thought that the question was how the divine nature united with Jesus' humanity after that should be, not then, after that humanity had already come into existence. Let me see if I can draw a picture of what these guys were getting at. Here's, here's their wrong perspective. Here's the flow of history. Time. They're inside history walking around. They look and they see the humanity of Jesus walking around. So this guy looks and here's Jesus. And he recognizes that Jesus was once a little boy and then he was a little baby. Jesus has come into the world through his mother Mary. And he walks around the world. Human being. So they say, oh, that's interesting. Well now, given the fact that he's a real human being, how does God get in him? So what Nestorius did was the question was how the divine nature united with humanity after the humanity had already come into existence. The question wasn't thinking back further. The question Nestorius tried to answer was what philosophers today try to answer. It's what Time Magazine tries to do. They start off with a view that history is history. The universe is there. Here's the way things are. Now, given the fact that things are this way, you know, we have one head, not two heads. We have a certain IQ. We have two legs, not four. There we are. Now, we're walking around in history. Now, given that situation, how does God get into it? How does God get into it? You know, I mean, it's like a square peg in a round hole. How does God get into this box without binding himself up and twisting himself to trying to get into this thing called man. Well, now, what's fatally flawed about the whole, whole perspective is wrong? What, what was the first thing we dealt with in the biblical framework? First act. Creation. Do you remember back, we went, went through and we said, um, we had this slide, the buried foundation. First thing, what do we say? It was the act of creation. And what does the act of creation do? What did God reveal at the moment that he created? He revealed the nature of God, the nature of man, and the nature of nature. So, instead, Nestorius, of having your idea of what humanity was and the structure of the universe, what you should have done was go back and define man and define God and define nature from the act of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Had you done that, what would you have seen in the narrative when man is created? What is man created as? He is created as image of God. Oh, then God doesn't have to twist and turn himself, does he, to get into a box that he didn't think about before. He made the box back there knowing that he would incarnate himself. So there's no tension between the design of man and the ultimate purpose of God. See, the problem today is we, the pagan thought always hangs itself up. And, and it hangs itself up today because 
in here we can add millions and billions of years and evolution, all the rest of it. And what you wind up with is that our shape, our DNA, our structure is purely a casual statistical result. There's no purpose in it. It's just a casual result of chaos down through history. That's all. And if that's the case, then there was no predetermined plan about our design as human beings. And if there was no predetermined plan, no predetermined design, and all is just flux and chaos, yeah, that's a big question. If there's a God, how does he get into the pile of mess? Here we are as biological goo. Now, what does God do with this mess? Well, it's not a mess. Not if you start where the Scripture starts. And that's why we start with Genesis 1, not Matthew 19. That's why the Genesis should be translated to people out in Africa and other places first. Not the Gospel of Mark. You can't deal with Jesus until you deal with Genesis. Because Genesis sets you up with all the categories that you use later on to deal with this. So Nestorius never got it straight. And so then, the next sentence in the paragraph on page 41 Notice what the result of this is. Same thing has happened today. History, rather than God's plan for history, was the starting point. Now let's read that sentence carefully. History, rather than God's plan for history, was the starting point. What does that do to your thinking? If you start with history, and you don't think back of history to a plan, aren't you free to interpret history any way you want to? You have your idea of history. I have mine. You have yours. Everybody has their own ideas of history. Got a hundred people, hundred different ideas of history, all subject to our own whims. And the reason we can all say that is because there's no absolute plan to history. But if there is an absolute plan, and God is the creator, then there's no problem here with God, with with this nature. God made you know God made human beings analogous to Himself. The issue was then how God's plan fitted into this pre-established history. Nestorianism viewed the matter as one of God's accommodating himself to the so-called limitations of history. According to this era, Mary bore Jesus, the anointed one, as a human baby, not as God already united with humanity in one person. Nestorianism held that Jesus was a human person, God was a divine person. They came together after Jesus' birth in a moral union, but not a physical union. The two persons with two natures formed a sort of company that could be viewed as two parallel lines that never met. Again, great church historian Schaff summarizes it by saying, it asserted, rightly, the duality of natures and continued distinction between them. It denied with equal correctness that God as such could be either born, suffer, and die. But it pressed the distinction of the two natures to double personality. It substituted for the idea of the incarnation the idea of an assumption, an entire man into fellowship with the Logos. Instead of God-man, we have here a mere God-bearing man. Two natures form not a personal unity but a conjunction. And then we have the results of Nestorianism and so on. If you turn the page, in page 42, what happens, if we don't have union of God and man in the person of Jesus Christ, where else do we ever get it together? See the point? If you don't get this right, and we don't make it with Jesus Christ, then God is never going to be any clearer. So either it's this or nothing. That's why Christology is such an important doctrine. 
if this event of Jesus Christ were not a union, no other event in history could have been made the things any closer. The other erroneous attempt was monophysitism. That went in the opposite direction than Nestorianism. Where Nestorianism exaggerated the duality of two natures into a duality of persons, monophysitism, see the word mono, thesis, is, physis is, is nature. One nature. That's what monophysitism means. One nature. What they believed was before the incarnation, two natures. After the incarnation, one nature. So now you have humanitized deity or deitized or deified humanity. Eutyches defended the doctrine that both natures were transformed into the divine, which implied a unity and a homogeneity in the nature of Christ. Like Gregory of Nicaea, Eutychus made use of the metaphor of the sea and a drop of vinegar to illustrate his doctrine of transformation. Just Jesus, as a drop of vinegar poured into the sea, will take on the nature of the sea, so human nature was transformed into the divine. So Christ was certainly made up out of two natures originally, but after the union he no longer persists in two natures, but only one. Now, you can say, whew, heavy stuff. And it is. But let me take you in the next paragraph to something that happened 20 years ago in the evangelical church. Maybe some of you in the uh, flower children age, in the, that group, hippie group, uh, we'll remember this. But let me show you something in this paragraph. Monophysitism recalls the Indian myth of the god Krishna who has the power to transform himself into men or even into beasts. Oriental so-called incarnations, far from being parallel examples of the biblical god's incarnation in Christ, are in reality another recycled monophysitism. That's all it is. Recycled. In the 1960s, when Eastern religious influence came strongly into the American culture, it was no accident George Harrison's then popular song, My Sweet Lord, alternated the uses of the words Hallelujah and Hare Krishna. It was... What's he saying? Think about it. What is he saying? He's saying that hallelujah, the biblical God in Jesus Christ is no different than Krishna. They're all the same thing. Absolutely the same thing. No difference. And everybody thought it was cool. Nestorian and Masophysitism led to Chalcedon. Now on page 43, we come to the end of this doctrinal formulation. What we'll do next week is we'll get into some of the um, implications of it and then start going into the Trinity. What they did, this is one of the great church councils. Chalcedon, the Council of Chalcedon had wide-ranging political results. Political results. Because of what they did here. See, before the 1950s, there were a few people that thought, believe it or not. And they thought very consistently. And these ideas had consequences, had profound consequences. So let's look at what they did at Chalcedon, and then we'll just briefly introduce some of the fallout of what happened. The, creature, the Creator's divine nature, which Christ has, could never be mixed with His created humanity after the fashion of monophysitism. On the other hand, there had to be a real physical unity to avoid the problem in Nestorianism. The solution 
comes in recognizing that the second person of the Trinity, see, all of a sudden now we've got to deal with the Trinity. That's why we're going to go next week to the notes on, on the Trinity. That the second person of the Trinity, the Logos or Son, can be distinguished from the divine essence because all three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, share the same essence and therefore are distinguished within the Trinity. The second person, therefore, can be distinguished from both the divine essence and the human nature. And it can be the real focal point for any unity in Christ. The Chalcedon Creed states the matter in this work. The, the dark, bolding type there is a summary of what Chalcedon taught. That's what you've heard me do for the last four or five weeks. I keep telling you that, that bold in phraseology. But now, look carefully at the actual creedal words of Chalcedon. Following the Holy Fathers, we unanimously, by the way, notice that they saw themselves as continuous, logically continuous with the apostles, logically continuous with the prophets of the Old Testament. They never thought of Chalcedon and Nicaea, they never thought of themselves as inventing new doctrine. They thought of themselves as just clarifying what the Word of God said. Following the Holy Fathers, we unanimously teach. Notice they had unanimity in the council. It's because they killed all the heretics. We unanimously teach one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. Now you see what they did beyond Nicaea. Remember what Nicaea did? It kept on putting those adjectives and phrases in there. Now look what they did. These guys knew Nicaea. And the Nicaean Creed still didn't solve a few problems. And now look what they're doing. The only begotten, known in two natures, without confusion, without conversion, that means conversion of one nature to the other, without severance, that's Nestorianism, where they severed it, without division, again, kind of Nestorian-like, the distinction of natures being in no wise abolished by their union. See, that kept the creator-creature distinction but the peculiarity of each nature being maintained, that is, the divine essence and maintained, and both concurring in one person in hypostasis. That's why we call it the hypostatic union. It comes from that same word, which is, is uh, referring to the being. Now, let's remember something back when we were studying God and His attributes. God is sovereign. God is righteous. God is love. God is omniscient. He is omnipotent omnipresent, immutable, eternal. He has these attributes. They're all infinite attributes. Man has been created in God's image. What corresponds to sovereignty? Will. What corresponds to righteousness? The sense of righteousness in our conscience. We experience love on the human plane. We experience knowledge. Correspondence, our version, our finite experience of God's omniscience. We experience omnipresence in the sense we occupy space. We occupy part of space. He occupies all of space. And so forth. Stability. Uh, we have um, energy, power. That's a finite version of his omnipotence. We have an experience and sense of time, which is a finite version of eternity. So, there's an analogy here between how God is in his very essence and how he has made us in his image so that when he wants to incarnate himself in the person of Jesus Christ, there's not a tension there because they've been designed one for the other. God did not let biological statistics come up with a chance game, sort of like lotto, 
and just decide, gee, look what came out of the bottle tonight. And then decided, well, after it comes out of the bottle, now let's see, what am I going to do to get this together? Not at all. It was together in his mind from the very beginning. So now Chalcedon says, that's what, uh, the, the, I'm looking now at the emboldened print, undiminished deity. That's one section. Why do I say undiminished deity? Why don't I just say deity there? Undiminished deity because of something we're going to run into later on in the life of Christ called the doctrine of kenosis, that he diminished his deity during the time he walked on earth. And we're going to deal, have to deal with that. That's coming up. So you've already got kind of a, a head, head start on that because obviously Chalcedon doesn't tolerate that. It's undiminished deity. At no point did Jesus Christ's deity ever go away. Undiminished deity. United with true humanity. Notice the true humanity. That denies docetism. Notice the word united with. It's not a company of two walking around. It's one. Undiminished deity, united with true humanity, without confusion. That gets rid of monophysitism, because that was the vinegar and water. Without confusion. Creator-creature distinction has to be there all the time. In one person. Not two people. One person. And the last word is very important also. It's forever. The humanity of Jesus doesn't go away. When Jesus Christ appears in the book of Revelation with all of his deity unleashed and you see the lamb upon the throne, it's still the lamb that is upon the throne. His glory shines. But if you look carefully at his hands, you'll see the scars, the marks of history. So, it is forever So forever and ever and ever in the presence of God's Son, we will be in the presence of a human being, our peer. That's why when we are judged, the Father, Jesus said, has committed all judgment into the hands of His Son. What does that mean? Peer. It's a trial by peer. We don't have to be judged by God. We're judged by the God-man. And then when we try to blow smoke and say, well, you didn't understand this. And didn't. Oh, yeah, I understood. I walked around. Don't give me that stuff. It's a rather piercing judgment because it's going to blow away all excuses and hogwash that we come up with because he's been here. He isn't fooled. He's walked around. He's done it. He's seen it. And that's what makes him a fair judge. He is a peer. Now, you tell me another religion that you know of in the world that is anything remotely approximating what we've talked about in the last three weeks. You see, the deeper you get into Scripture, the more nonsensical and stupid this stuff sounds when you hear about, well, Christianity is sort of like all the other religions. It really... Anybody who says that obviously hasn't studied this material. How could anybody state this material and come to such a foolish conclusion as that? For 600 years, the students of Scripture fought to summarize the doctrine. Actually, it should be 500 years. The doctrine of the hypostatic union is the only view that has survived the greatest theological discussion that man has ever undertaken. It is the only one that has no contradiction with New Testament revelation. 
It doesn't complete our understanding of Christ's nature, but it forms a basis for other doctrines that we are going to study. So, the doctrine of the hypostatic, we're going to stop here because we want to get into some of the implications next time and we'll get into the area of the Trinity uh, on the handout that's going to come out. And I want to deal with that so while we're, it's fresh in our minds, it, they had to come to that conclusion in order to make it fit the New Testament revelation. Father, we thank You for our time tonight. We thank You that You have seen fit to let us in on enough of Your character, of Your being, of Your work in history that we are obliged to give You thanks and to give glory to You and Your plan. We pray that this truth would rise up in our hearts, be nourished, and grow into fruit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As is usual, we'll have some Q&A after. We're open for questions. Are there any questions? Just blew them away tonight. <laughs> Good ask. Okay. How does that fit with the verse? I mean, I believe that he was fully God. But how does that fit in with the verse that says, even though he was God, that he take on the form of God, just to form the form of a servant? Okay. The question is about how undiminished deity fits in, particularly those New Testament passages that clearly show. Uh, Christ sort of restraining, um, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, those kind of passages. That passage that is quoted in Philippians 2 forms the heart of something we're going to get into in the life of Christ called the doctrine of kenosis, which is a Greek word that's used there, emptying himself. And there was a big debate in church history about that one. Similar to this stuff, but the, the debate was did Christ give up? How, how did Christ give up his, his attributes? Did he give up the use of them? Did he voluntarily give up the use of his attributes? Or did he give up even more than that the control of the attributes to the Father? Um, now, this sounds again like how many angels dance ahead of a pen, but it really isn't. Because, I'll tell you why it isn't. It's very intimately related to his priesthood. Because the issue, actually beneath this one, is how did Christ meet the temptations? So you don't get a right answer here. You're going to come up with some answer, well, he met the temptations in the power of his deity. Well, if he met the temptations in the power of his deity, then how is he a model for us? But then if he, if he did meet the temptations in the power of his, in, in his humanity indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then he becomes a model for us, but then what happened to his deity? So, I really don't want to get into that question, Debbie, tonight, because it gets into this kenosis thing. But the, the bottom line in it all was that Jesus Christ, in one way, and all analogies break down if you press them too fast, too hard, but... In one, way, in one sense, Jesus Christ was, so to speak, in, in his humanity, 
a forerunner and a pioneer and a test driver, so to speak, of the indwelling Holy Spirit and his empowerment for living a righteous life. What Jesus did was he basically in his humanity lived perfectly with the indwelling Holy Spirit and met the power, met the temptations with the indwelling Spirit and thereby provided a model for the church age. So he actually inaugurated in his incarnation, he, so to speak, he test drove the product and proved that a human being, a member of the human race, could walk this earth indwelt by the Spirit and encounter evil and, and be victorious. So, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the church that follows has Christ as the model. And had he not done that, there would be no model for all the stuff that's being taught in the New Testament about the indwelling Christ and with this word dwelling you richly in all wisdom. There would, it would be just a lot of imperatives, but not really with any kind of, a, of concrete. And that means that Christ serves as a model for the New Testament imperative commands like in the Old Testament, what was the event that served Israel in the same stead? What event did the Old Testament prophets keep looking backward to when they felt depressed and felt God's plan was kind of phasing out? Well, they, they thought back to the Exodus. And what was the Exodus? It was a triumph over Pharaoh. It showed that the God of the Israelites was superior to all other gods. And if they were losing their battles in the book of Judges and Joshua, it wasn't because their God failed. It was they failed their God. And it was a theological corrective. So in the same way, in the New Testament, Jesus Christ met even Satan himself in the temptation. That becomes another big thing called the doctrine of impeccability. We're going to get into that one. It's yet another area of the doctrine of Christ. And this was that... When Christ was tempted, how does his temptations mirror mine? Or were they of an utterly different character, all tied up with this role of deity? Did he, in other words, ever take advantage of the deity to meet the temptations? And obviously, you get in the New Testament, that's not really true. But in the New Testament, you clearly see his complete undiminished deity flash forth. For example, the, on the Gethsemane when he utters the words ego and me and the whole police force fall over. When you see him on the Sea of Galilee and he commands, he doesn't ask the Father to suppress the wind. He says, just be quiet. And the wind stops. Now, can you, that's why the disciples got their minds blown when they saw this. Because it wasn't like a prophet. A prophet would have prayed to God and had God done it. But here's this guy sitting in a boat, telling the wind to shut up and be quiet. And it does. What do you do with that? That's his full undiminished deity. It's not half a deity. It's full deity coming out there. So the question we have to face in the New Testament is, why is it that at certain points, his deity flashes forth, and then it just kind of retreats, and you don't see it? And then, then, then you see him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, the, the apostles were, were around him all the time, physically watching him sleep, eat, be tired. says he's tired in the Testament. He knows what tiredness is. And then all of a sudden, they go up on the mountain, and suddenly there's this glory that appears. 
that's his deity shining forth. It's like the light comes on behind the lampshade. And now all of a sudden, hey, wait a minute, something's different here. And you can tell by the apostles' reaction that they were surprised by this because that wasn't like him. That's what they did not usually see. But that day they saw it, and and it just struck them. So that's the, the paradox of the Lord Jesus. He walked around this earth, and you see Mount the Transfiguration, you see him on the Sea of Galilee, you see him saying, Ego Ami to the police force. Then you see him in the court allowing Roman soldiers to beat him up. Now just imagine that. Um, why did he do that? Why did he not, for example, say Ego Ami to them? And they would have fallen flat in their face. But he didn't. And that's part of his obedience to the Father's plan to come to the cross for our salvation. Well, the way this has always worked out for me when I go through this exercise, believe me, we don't, I don't usually do this, but when, when I have time to think through Christology, it's always been refreshing to me in the sense it's always given me energy. And I guess the reason is that the reality of God's work in Christ was so profound that you're overwhelmed the more you think about it. These little discussions we get into here, with these arguments, there's a reason why I bring them up. When we get into this kenosis thing and the impeccability thing, big, hairy stuff, theologians still have trouble with this stuff. And it's not that we've got the, an answer here. We don't. All we're showing is you the elements of it. But what happens after you work your head on it, after a while, what happens is that you suddenly realize, look at the, what the Lord did for me. Look what happened here. If this is the guy who walked around and could tell the winds to be quiet, in less than, I mean, how long does it take you to say, be quiet? One second. In one second, he can calm the winds in the Sea of Galilee, and probably for hours, he allowed himself to be beaten by Roman soldiers and nailed to a cross. This is the God who allowed himself to be nailed to the cross here. So all of a sudden now, the work on the cross starts taking on some rather awesome dimensions. You begin to realize, this is the God of the universe that was here. This wasn't his spokesman. This was him. And then the resurrection. Um, I mean, here was the first resurrection in the history of man. The real Not a resuscitation. Not an appearing of the dead person. But the first resurrection. The first fruits of the ultimate resurrection. And he walks around in his humanity. And yet he's also God. And then he rules the universe and, and walks about a half a mile, a mile across the Kidron Valley there, Jerusalem, up to the Mount of Ascent and, and goes up into heaven at, in a human body. So that's why I said earlier, back a couple of years ago, remember we were arguing about where is Christ and does he have to be at a point? Yes, he does because he's got his bones. He's got two legs, hands, and arms, and a head. Got to be somewhere. They're not off in la-la land somewhere in some nth dimension. They're in a place. So his humanity is at a place tonight somewhere. And he has, wherever he is, he has bones and flesh because when the apostles touched him, 
He said, touch me, go ahead. You think I'm a ghost? By the way, that's another eloquent argument in the New Testament for his, for his full deity that was used. Remember some of those docetist guys? There were actually some of them who denied that he actually had a physical body. Well, you see, the problem in the New Testament was that some people didn't think he had a new body, at least after the resurrection, right? They thought he'd seen a ghost. I mean, what would we think? You know, we locked the doors, Tommy locks the doors, and we locked that door, and all of a sudden he appears inside the room. Now, what is this? How did he come through the wall? Well, I don't know how he came through the wall. He came through the wall, that's all. But the resurrection body can do that. Well, the natural interpretation of that event was, wait a minute, this is, not, this is immaterial. This is soul, this is spirit, but can't be body. And that's why he explicitly said, you come here and you see that I have bones and I have flesh. He did that to show that your interpretation is wrong. You still got... We're still screwed up in our categories. Haven't got it right yet. We probably won't for a few billion years. But the idea here is that this is a, a magnificent challenge to every area of human thought from the bottom of our brains to the top of them. That it, the, the gospel revolutionizes all of the ideas and basics. In fact, there's even an article by a rather brilliant Christian mathematician who argues that logic itself derives from the nature of the Trinity and goes through several passages in the Gospel of John to show this, that, that the concept behind logic itself is implicit in the Trinity. When we get into the Trinity, I will show you some of, this, some of those arguments and insights because they blow you away to realize that if you don't believe in the Trinity, you can't explain one sentence in any language. We're going to deal with how every time we speak a sentence, we presuppose the doctrine of the Trinity. Every time we think with logic, we presuppose the Trinity. See, it's quite the other way around. Most people like to say, I start with logic and I start with language, and then from there... I start thinking about God and so forth. Whereas it's actually the other way. The only reason I enjoy the power of logic and language is because it's put there by the triune God and reflects his nature. Therefore, I can think and I can speak. So, very heavy stuff in all this. And don't worry about losing the forest for the trees here. We'll come back to the forest. Because what we're trying to show is that when we sing about Christ, when we think about Christ, when we thank Him for our salvation, we want to get a little bit more mature in appreciating what He's done for us. A lot of stuff was done for us. And we're clueless. You know, we walk around about that much awareness of what all was going on here. The disciples were that way. That's why a lot of the stuff we read about in the New Testament probably came to them later in life. And probably that's why the fourth gospel is written the way it is, by John. And John sat back and he looked at what the other, disciples, uh, the other apostles, Matthew and Mark and Luke, wrote. And then John must have sat down and said, okay, I'm going to write and I'm going to try to recall the things that these guys haven't thought about yet. And that's why John's gospel starts out with that phrase, we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father. And then, John never tells us the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. 
Now, if there is one event in the life of Christ that you would, you would think would be an example of his glory flashing forth, it would have been the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, why is it then that John deliberately doesn't do it? The other gospel writers do, but not John. It must be because John perceives Christ's glory in all kinds of little things. He was so perceptive that to him, little things made Christ Christ. John starts into his gospel. Remember that it goes on, John chapter 2, and he speaks of the call of Nathaniel. And it's, you can read right through John chapter 2 and read right by it. Never notice. There's a little clause in there where um, Jesus and Nathaniel have a little conversation. And Jesus happens to just drop right in the middle of the conversation. Yeah, Nathan, Nathaniel, um, I saw you under the tree before. Huh? You, you weren't even here. I saw you under the tree. Now, you see, that's the flashing forth of his omniscience the flashing forth of his omnipresence. And that's what John the Apostle loved to write about. That's what makes John's Gospel, to me, one of the most fascinating sections of the, of the Bible. Because he, he, he does this to you, and he, he does it to you so that he puts it in the text, and, and he's not asking us to you know, spend hours on it. But it's like he put it in the text, so when the Holy Spirit draws it to your attention, you'll see it. And it'll be a little pearl there for you at the right time. So those are the things that um, fall out of all this. And uh, we don't want to... We're going to take time, our time going through the life of Christ in, in the broad sense. We're not, this is not a biographical study of Christ. It's just those four events, the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection. And we will inter, interrupt our forward progress by dealing with the Trinity next time, probably two weeks, um, just to get some flavor for some of the debates that happen with the Trinity and to see the power of these doctrines uh, as foundations on which every day we breathe, think, talk, we're actually walking on a foundation that's established by the Trinity. Um, are there any other questions that anyone would like to have? Yes, yeah, Bunny. Lazarus was not a resurrection. It was a resuscitation. So he died eventually again. I mean, he... he came out from the grave, but it's not said to be a resurrection. It's just, the technical word is a resuscitation. It's like, um, um, that's why Christ is called the first fruits of that resurrection. Um, there's, there's stages of resurrection in the New Testament, three or four stages. And Christ the first fruit, and then there's the rapture of the church, and then there's the second advent, and then there's the resurrection unto damnation into, in the great white throne judgment. And it's interesting that Greek in the first Corinthians uses the term for um, a military parade of each unit in the parade sequentially. And it's that imagery that Paul says he must have watched a lot of the Roman parades and watched the legionnaires go down the street. And um, he says, and that's the resurrection. There's Unit 1, Unit 2, Unit 3. He specifically talks about multiple units of the resurrection, but Christ being in the vanguard of the parade. So because of that, we hold that those other things are, are resuscitations. In other words, when he, Lazarus was called out of the grave, he did not come out with a resurrection body. He came out with a, with a natural body. If his sister had pricked his hand with a needle, it would have bled. 
you prick a resurrection body, apparently it doesn't. Better for sowing, yes. The bodies in Matthew. That they would be. This is what Wade's asking here. Is you know, there's a passage in Matthew where they came out of their graves. Um, I'm not an expert on that particular passage. I really, uh, I'm aware of different thoughts about it. Uh, I've personally never studied it to my satisfaction, so I won't say. But it's obviously a momentous event because it was observed around Jerusalem. Something happened. Okay, I um, guess we'll meet together next time.